It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's biggest news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Joining us this week are New Scientist reporters Claire Wilson and Michael LePage. Hello. 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 How's everyone doing during lockdown now? Ooh, great. (laughs) Just as good (laughs) as last time. Not very convincing, actually. (laughs) Ooh, great. Coming up on the show, uh, we're looking at what the new variants of SARS-CoV-2 mean. Uh, We're going to also look at what we really know about the effect of low-carb diets, uh, which might be something that people are on in January. And we're going to hear about new discoveries of some early human species in South Africa. We've also got some exciting climate news and a weird story about baking soda bread and tissue engineering. But before we get into it, we must tell you about a special January offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get New Scientist for half price for 12 weeks. (laughs) Woohoo! Yeah, 12 weeks for half price. Uh, It's an absolute bargain. Uh, Go to newscientist.com slash pod 12 find out more and subscribe and you'll get all the benefits of the premium content in the magazine and access to all the archive content so that's newscientist.com slash pod 12 half price for 12 weeks now hospitals in the uk are being overwhelmed by surging numbers of coronavirus cases and there's evidence that this is in part due to a new coronavirus variant that spreads more readily Uh, it's a variant that's already reached many other countries Michael, you've been looking into this. We get thousands of variants, don't we, of the virus, but there are two at the moment that seem to spread faster. There's one called B1.351 from South Africa, and the one in the UK that's causing all the problems seems to be B1.1.7. That's right. So there have been lots of claims before about viruses, variants of coronavirus that spread faster, and there was a lot of scepticism about these latest claims at first because those earlier claims turned out to be wrong. But there's growing evidence, at least for the the B117 variant in the UK, that it rarely is infectious. So we've seen in Denmark too, there's still only a low number of cases in Denmark, but it's spreading faster there too. So I think the the evidence is really growing very strong that this this B117 variant at least does spread much faster. The, The case is less clear for the B1351 variant in South Africa, because we have much less information on that. And are we able to tell if the the basic horror show that we've got in the UK at the moment, if that's down to the new variant or it's basically because we let the old variants get completely out of control in the or the December party season time? I think it's a combination of both. But 
it's becoming clear that B117 is really starting to dominate. So even before Christmas, it was causing 80% of infections in London, which means that at the moment, 80% of people being admitted to hospital will have the the new variant, and it, it's going to take over from the other variants very quickly if we don't stop it spreading. And I think the, the big worry with this new variant, if it if it is more infection, it's not just what's going to happen in the UK, but we're going to see uh, potentially a massive wave of new infections around the world. That would obviously be really bad news. And I think we're in a race now to try and vaccinate as many elderly and vulnerable people as we can before this, this new variant reaches them. We'll talk about the, the specific mutations in a minute. But before that, do we know if people with the new variant of the of coronavirus, do they get more sick? The good news is that it seems not. So there's a preliminary study from Public Health England, which found that people infected with the B117 were no more likely to be hospitalised or die. However, there is some concern about the, the B1351 variant in South Africa that that's got a couple more changes that might mean the vaccines are less effective. But that, that's purely speculation for now. This talk that um, the government is going to allow in the UK uh, uh, quite a long gap between the first and second dose of the vaccine. And if you have this period where someone's partially protected, does that kind of encourage evolution of the virus? So you could select for a, a more dangerous strain inadvertently. There are definitely some virologists who are worried about this. But I think to put it in perspective, uh, viruses also evolve in response to the immunity people get when they're infected naturally. So that's why the flu keeps coming back, because it evolves in response to the immunity we acquire to it. And there's there's already speculation that this is what drove the evolution of the B1351 variant in, in South Africa. So I, I don't think we should overblow these fears about spacing out vaccine doses. I mean, we are in a serious situation, and I, I think we do need to sort of take some risks that we wouldn't do normally. Okay, so about the the variant, the B117, tell us a bit about the new mutations and how they've changed the virus. Well, the short story is we don't really understand what's going on, but the B117 has a whole bunch of mutations. It's got at least 17 variations that sort of alter protein sequences. There's been a lot of attention to one of these sequences that's in the part of the spike protein. That's a protein that sits on the outside of the virus and binds to the sort of human cells. So there's one of these mutations affects a part of the spike protein that binds to cells. But then the, the odd thing about this N501Y mutation, as it's called, is we've seen it before. It was first spotted in Brazil in April. We've seen several variants with this mutation before, including there was one circulating in Wales for a while, and, and they don't seem to have been any more infectious. So it's a bit odd. We don't quite understand. But if this uh, new variant, the B117, really is more infectious, this must be some combination of all the mutations it has rather than any single one of them. And it seems similar for the B1351 variant in South Africa. And that's got an even more worrying mutation or three worrying mutations on, right? So yes, the, the B1351 variant has three mutations in the part of the virus uh, that bind to human cells. One of those variants is the same as a 117 variant. Uh, but obviously, the antibodies that we generate when we're infected, lots of them bind to that part of, of the virus. So if you think about it, if, if there's an antibody stuck to the part of the virus that lets it get into human cells, it can't get into human cells. So it's it's a worry when that part of the the virus in particular changes. But for now, we don't know if it 
affects how well vaccines will work. And, and the expectation is just that they would work less well, not that they'll be completely ineffective. Mm. But it might be that we have to tweak the vaccines um, or would we have to, you know, we might have to make entirely new vaccines against these new variants? No, the, the great thing about all three vaccines that have been approved, so we've got two mRNA vaccines and we've got the Oxford vaccine and they all they contain the genetic instructions for making a spike protein. And the great thing about that is it's very easy to change those genetic instructions. What's not clear is how much testing regulators will want before approving change vaccines. But I, I don't, we're definitely not going to have to start from scratch again. So they might have to do some animal testing and maybe some human tests, but we're definitely not going to have another long wait. Yeah. But it, it, we could be in a basically in an arms race situation where the the virus mutates. We change the vaccine with the instructions in the in the RNA, and uh, ramp up our new vaccine, and and it goes again. That that's exactly what happens with flu every, every year. The good thing about the coronavirus is it actually changes much less readily than the the flu virus. So uh, I think this is a race potentially we can win. And until we win that, though, with the infection rate so high um, in the UK and in other countries, the message really is to behave as if you have the virus. Absolutely. I, I think we've all become a bit blasé as this pandemic has dragged on and on and on. But, the you know, we've, we've got several effective vaccines now and it'll really be a terrible tragedy if tens of thousands more people die before they can get vaccinated. A very sobering thought and definitely something that um, drives home just how seriously we still need to take this coronavirus. And there's a lot more about coronavirus in the mag this week, also including a a really interesting piece about the riddle of smell loss, which is one of the very common and uh, bizarre symptoms of infection with the virus. So that's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? Uh, This is one of Michael's stories, actually, so it's good he's here. You know how there's been this craze for baking bread? during the whole pandemic. Um, has anyone tried it here? I made sourdough pizza dough once. <laughs> <laughs> All I've managed is uh, banana bread, which doesn't really count as bread. Uh, but the, the point is, is that the baking craze has inspired a team of tissue engineers to try using bread as a scaffold for growing cells. So when people want to grow organs in the lab, you need something for the cells to grow on in the culture, like, you know, a scaffold made from collagen, usually. Um, but there's been a few, well, there's lots of problems with using collagen. Isn't that right, Michael? Yeah, so to get collagen, basically, you need to start with uh, an existing tissue, which means you either need to use animal tissue or human tissue from a cadaver and remove all the cells. And obviously, that's problematic for all sorts of reasons yeah. and, and also very expensive. So they've tried using... They've tried using bread and uh, the, the first times they tried, they ended up with a soggy mess, but eventually they settled on Irish soda bread and that turned out to work the best. Um, so look, before we get into that, tell us why, again, we might want to grow living tissue and organs in the lab. Well, well there, there are two reasons, one of which is to grow new replacement organs for people. So potentially replacing livers and hearts and kidneys and and so on. The other reason is to grow meat. If you think about all these efforts to create lab-grown meat, essentially you're tissue engineering muscle. So if you think about it for growing uh, a meat in, in a lab or in a factory, you want a scaffold that's really cheap and edible. Uh, and so bread could be uh, an ideal thing for that. 
So you could grow, you could grow your burger in the bun. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so presumably if this all works out, it could be a lot cheaper to use uh, soda bread. Yes, uh, they've had to they've had to tweak it a little. It, it, it wasn't quite strong enough, so I had to sort of reinforce its structure by treating it chemically to create more cross links between the fibres. So they'll need to find a way of doing that that's perfectly sort of safe for for human use and. You know, who who knows? Maybe it would it'll find medical use as well. So this this team have also been looking at using all sorts of plant substitutes, and they've got some really promising results. Using you won't believe this, using asparagus to treat spinal injuries. <laughs> okay, well that's uh, that's one for another time, I think. Um, Claire, you like your science fiction. Any science fiction spring to mind on this? Oh, yes. Well, um, when it comes to regrowing your organs, I actually prefer the method used by Deadpool. You know, that rather rude and sweary uh, superhero from Marvel. When he loses part of his body, which he which happens to him quite a lot, he's always losing bits of himself. He just regrows it in situ straight from the wound. So, for instance, if his hand gets chopped off, he'll just start by growing another tiny hand and then it will get <laughs> bigger, which has a lot more comedy value. Okay, it's not going to work for factory grown meat, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> this is the I silly part of the segment. Anymore. <laughs> uh, for me, I'm going with Westworld, uh, and that's where the science fiction show where synthetic humans are grown in pots, uh, and obviously, I mean, obviously, that's where the scaffold <laughs> with soda bread is going to end up. Time out, we want to tell you about our series of online lectures for 2021. It's the Big Thinkers series. Yes, we've got 10 online lectures. They'll be covering everything from the end of aging to extraterrestrial life to quantum computing and AI, all brought to you by world-class scientists and experts. The first one on January the 21st is The End of Aging by longevity expert Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey de Grey is a world-class researcher on lifespan and aging, so it's going to be a brilliant event. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more and book your tickets. And if you like what you see, you can get a discount if you buy a series ticket for all the Big Thinker lectures of the year. To hear more from the finest minds in science in 2021, go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more and book your tickets. Claire, you've written the cover story in the magazine this week, and it's all about low-carb diets, how cutting carbs and instead filling up on fat and protein has not only been shown to be as effective a way to lose weight as more traditional low-fat diets, but it's even being taken up by many people as a strategy for healthy eating. That has some doctors worried. What's the controversy? Well, as you say, uh, these low-carb diets, which are also sometimes called the Atkins diet, keto, paleo, um, they have all been shown to help people lose weight if you can stick to it. But some doctors are worried that um, this comes at a risk because, um, as we all know, the mainstream medical advice is that you should try and uh, eat a low-fat diet if you want to avoid weight gain. And you should also definitely try to avoid um, saturated fat, uh, mainly from animal products, because this increases your risk for heart attacks and stroke. So this is what we've been told all this time. Um, it's, it's generally based on um, kind of large-scale population studies that have looked at what people eat and um, how likely they are to have heart attacks over time. And it fits in with the kind of the mainstream theory that um, saturated fat causes you to have rise in your levels of bad cholesterol, also called LDL, um, because that leads to clogged arteries. And that's what ultimately is supposed to cause heart attacks and strokes. 
So the worry is that if you're on these low-carb diets, that you're eating more saturated fat, most likely, and that may help you lose weight, that strategy may help you lose weight, but it could jeopardize your heart health in the process. Yes, that's it in a nutshell. But you've looked into this pretty closely, and the re- the relationship is actually not that straightforward. Yes, that's right. So all most of our evidence for thinking that saturated fat leads to heart attacks comes from, uh, as I said, these these large-scale population studies. But they can't really show um, what's cause and what's effect. They, they can show correlations, but they can't um, show that eating saturated fat causes heart attacks. And when you look at um, a better kind of medical evidence, randomized clinical trials, they show that when people actually take on these uh, low-carb, high-fat diets, they don't actually um, have higher numbers of heart attacks and their bad cholesterol levels don't usually go up. Now, it does happen. They do get a rise in bad cholesterol in a minority of people who try it. Uh, but most interestingly, even the people who do see this happen, the small minority of people who do see their bad cholesterol levels go up, some other equally important markers of heart health tend to improve to move in the right direction. So quite important things like blood pressure, their good cholesterol levels, because you have many different kinds of cholesterol, their blood sugar control, which is very important for people with uh, diabetes. So because of these findings from the trials, these days, some respectable mainstream doctors in the UK, people who work in the NHS, who are diabetes specialists and obesity specialists and run NHS weight loss clinics, they now are recommending that people try low-carb, high-fat diets as a way to lose weight and improve their diabetes symptoms. Wow. So just to go back a little bit, this point that actually, you know, people who are on these these low-carb diets in general don't see their bad cholesterol levels go up. And even those that do tend to see other markers improve. How can that be? Does that mean that sort of our, our whole understanding of the link between bad cholesterol and heart health isn't right? Well, that you've put your finger on it. That is the, the million-dollar question, and that is what this new evidence from uh, the randomized trials seems to be pointing to. So it does sound like there are still some some big questions here. But based on what you discovered in your reporting, where do you come down on on low carb diets? Do you think mm-hmm. the concerns about heart health are are overstated? Well, um, I'm not a doctor, remember, and not giving out <laughs> medical advice. But all I can say is, after all this research that I have done. If I uh, was diagnosed with diabetes or pre-diabetes, or if I was trying to lose weight, I I probably would consider giving low-carb eating a go. But I would be careful, and I would also keep monitoring my cholesterol levels by requesting frequent uh, blood cholesterol checks. And even if I wasn't able to get frequent checks on the NHS, I would probably even pay for it privately. I would be concerned enough to do that. And I should say that um, even uh, proponents of low-carb eating do recommend that if you have a health condition like diabetes, before you do a radical change in your diet, you should try to get advice from your doctor uh, before you do something as drastic as this. And now it's time for Climate Hope or Doom, when we discuss some of the latest news to do with climate change and decide how full or empty we think the glass is looking. This week, in spite of other, frankly, terrifying developments in the US, um, we do get to talk about a rather promising result in the Georgia election for US Senate. 
very understated, rather promising. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Uh, it, it's been overshadowed by, uh, yeah, well, look, it's an, it was an attempted insurrection, wasn't it, at the Capitol? But yeah, there were two runoff races in Georgia for the Senate and Democrats have won both of them. Yeah, so Reverend Raphael Warnock became the first black person ever elected to represent Georgia in the Senate. And John Ossoff, also a Democrat, won a Senate seat. Yeah, and with them both winning, it means the Republican-Democrat split in the Senate is exactly 50-50, and the tie-break vote goes to the vice president, who will be Kamala Harris. This means the Democrats will get control of the Senate, as well as the House and the presidency. And, and this is why we're featuring it in this segment, it means that the president, President Biden, will have much greater ability to push through his climate reforms. Yeah. And as we know, um, focusing on climate change was central to Joe Biden's election campaign. And he made pledges and a plan to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and um, looked into a Green New Deal and clean energy revolution. So, yeah, as you say, more than promising. <laughs> and also, as well as the, that U.S., the big revolution in the U.S. that this could um, engender, what's really important is the global leadership that it's going to provide. So, you know, the U.S. is going to join, rejoin the Paris Agreement this month. And Biden said that he'll get all other major countries to ramp up their efforts to cut emissions. So uh, are you happy about this, Michael? Oh, I, I opened a bottle of bubbly uh, when I heard the news from Georgia. <laughs> this is this is tremendous news. For so long, we, we, you know, efforts in, in the US have been sort of stymied by the fact that um, you know, even when there were presidents who wanted to take action on climate, they didn't have control of the, the Senate. Uh, and so I think we're in a, there's a real opportunity here. Now, obviously, there's a sort of terrible situation where many people have lost their jobs due to the pandemic across the world. But there's a real opportunity to sort of pump lots of money into the green economy, create green jobs, cut emissions uh, and solve two problems at once. And hopefully this is this is we're going to see this all across the world from from the US to Europe, the UK uh, and elsewhere. So, yes, it's a very welcome dose of climate hope this week. Yeah, with all the horror going on. Uh, and it's been going on for so long that when we saw when that Georgia election result came in, I, I felt something that I didn't. I was like, "What is this?" And it, it was an amazing surge of hope. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's fantastic stuff. And now it's time for great moments in evolution. This is a semi-regular feature in the show where we highlight something new we're learning about some critical point in our planetary or biological history. This week, we're visiting a cave in South Africa in a region. It's about 30 kilometres northwest of Johannesburg. It's in an area sometimes called the Cradle of Humankind because uh, so many hominid fossils have been found there. Yes, over the years, we've had loads of incredible fossil finds in this region, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, first of all, um, I think in 2008, there was Australopithecus sediba, which was a previously unknown species that had a really odd mix of uh, ape-like and human-like features, but it was two million years old. Uh, and then in 2013, we had an amazing discovery of a new human species called Homo naledi. And now we've had a whole load of new bones found from another cave. This is a different one from the Homo naledi cave. Uh, and it's looking like it might be another um, previously undiscovered species. Yes, I think they found a, a bit of a jaw and a tooth in 2014. And now they've been back to the cave and, and found bones from at least four more individuals. Yeah, so it's actually a, a weirdly 
a sort of bonus from uh, what's happened with the COVID restrictions. So the researchers couldn't do their work in the lab, but they were able to do socially distant field work uh, outdoors. So they went back to this cave called UW105 and, and they managed to get a whole load more bones out. Um, and the big deal uh, that we're reporting this week is that the new bones, they're not just from modern humans, that nor are they from Homo naledi or from Australopithecus sediba because the teeth are too big. And Lee Berger, who's the paleontologist who leads the team, he doesn't want to speculate how old they are. Um, you know, it might be that because the teeth are big that they're called, they're primitive in inverted commas. But then again, if you look at the the skull of Homo naledi, which is very small, you might think because of that it was it was also very old. But then it was it turned out that that only lived two hundred fifty thousand years ago. So the team are getting independent tests done to establish the age of the bones. So as yet, we don't know if it's really a new species. We don't. I mean, tentatively, it's looking like that. And it is really starting to change the picture of human evolution. It certainly adds to the idea that this region in South Africa is the the cradle or at least another cradle of humanity, um, in addition to the Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, which is where, you know, loads of famous early human fossils were found in the 20th century. Michael, you've reported on this over the years as well. Like, what do you think? It, you know, is it that we're seeing loads of early humans of different species coexisting at different times? That's the key point, isn't it? I mean, from two million years ago, right up to even 50,000 years ago, with the last of the Denisovans and the Neanderthals, we've had such coexistence going on. Yes, I think it's really changing the picture. If you go back just a decade or two ago, we had this really, these sort of really simple diagrams of one species led to another species led to another species. And, and it was, we kind of always knew it must have been a, a bit more complicated than that. And now we've seen such a, a richer picture and, and all sorts of strange and unexpected finds. And, and I think what we've seen as well is if you think about how difficult it is for, for human remains to be preserved uh, and, you know, places like... Uh, the cradle of humanity are they special because you've got all these sort of caves where uh, sort of animals can fall into and be preserved. So this this might have been going on all over Africa. Uh, we, we just we're not seeing most of it. That's all for now. We've got more great stories in the magazine this week, um, including a feature on metal farming. So growing metal uh, in plants and harvesting that way instead of through mining. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Claire and Michael, and thanks to you all for listening. Just before we go, remember you can get a subscription to New Scientist for 12 weeks for half price. Go to newscientist.com slash pod 12 for more information. And do spread the word about our show. Goodbye for now and take care. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.